Trinity Baptist Church. Once I was always getting in trouble, it felt like everyone was mad at me. My teachers, my mom and dad, sometimes even my friends, and like no one really understood me. I was willing to do anything to make it stop. Then Jesus found me, and he told me he loves me just as I am. He helped me find ways to focus and control my impulses, even when things around me were still a little crazy. Today, I only get in trouble sometimes. <laughs> but no matter how mad people may get at me, I know that God is not mad, and that he loves me and will never leave me, no matter what. My name is Jacqueline Markham, and I am new. Listen to this portion of the story of God. Now God learned that the Phari- now Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, My name is Dave Page. I'm uh, very grateful to to be with you again this summer. Um, We are in week seven, and I'm pretty sure I counted that right, of our series called Relate, where we're examining biblical relationships and trying to to identify and glean some wisdom that we can apply to our our day-to-day lives. As I was preparing for today, I happened upon a a quote on the internet. Um, Jacqueline, you don't have to worry about this one. But it says, respect old people. They graduated high school without Google and Wikipedia. (laughs) So I I get what this guy was trying to say, but then I found myself wondering if I actually fell into this category. I didn't know, know what years they really originated. So I went to Google, and I found their Wikipedia pages, and found out that I am, in fact, now one of these old people, according to this modern philosopher. (laughs) My twist on this would be, and and only some of you may get this, but respect older preachers. They wrote sermons without Bible Gateway and BlueLetterBible.com. So, (laughs) listen, respect is a principle that we all want, um, whether it's, it's conscious and at the forefront of our minds every day or not. But it, it really shows up when, when we don't receive it, when we feel disrespected. And that looks a little different for, for each individual. Some people, some people will feel neglected or ignored. Others will react with frustration and anger. Uh, still others will feel just discouraged or sad. I know for me, whether at work, uh, at home, at church, um, or just on the good old streets of New York City, um, when I feel disrespected, it, it tells me something about how that other person sees me, the value that they attribute to me as a human being. Unfortunately, we can look to a plethora of examples in our society and and across the world today, which demonstrate a lack of respect and, and its consequences. 
whether it's so much of reality television that you know seems to have as a precursor that you need to debase and devalue people for entertainment, or you know, bullying online and in schools just because somebody looks or talks a little differently. Our politicians, the people that we that we look to as examples to, to lead our country, are frequently jabbing and degrading each other just to make themselves look better. And there are multiple religions across the globe. Christianity is now, by the way, perceived to be, by, by many assessments, the most persecuted religion in the world. Um, some assessments will say 200 million Christians across 60 different countries are persecuted to varying different degrees because they think differently than somebody else. They believe something different than someone else. At the root of all these examples is a simple lack of respect for the intrinsic value of God's creation. We as individuals, we, we want to be respected, and, and we, want to, we want to be valued, but when we think about what is actually in our control, um, we, need to, we need to look to how we can act that out. I talked to a few weeks ago, looking at the, the example of David and Jonathan, how we, we all want a friend like Jonathan, but what's really in our control is to be a friend like Jonathan. And, and the same principle applies here. Are we intentional about the act of respecting and attributing value to other people around us, in here and out there? The, the story Jacqueline read is, is familiar to most of us, and today I hope to utilize it to, to look at what the Bible says about respect, how we respond to that, and, and what that impact ends up looking like. But first, let me, let me pray for us real quick. Father, we thank you for this day and this opportunity to, to dig into your word. I praise you for your sovereignty, for your might, for your completeness, and that your grace through your Son is, is sufficient for us, Lord. Father, I thank you for bringing each individual person here today. And I thank you that you have a message specifically for each individual heart in here. I pray that your spirit would, would be present and that would un, you would unlock our hearts to be able to, to hear what you have for us today. We love you, Lord. Be glorified. Amen. So I actually want to go back to, to John 4. If you have your Bibles, um, please turn with me there. I forgot to look at what page it is in the Pew Bibles, but I'm sure you have a neighbor that can help you out. Thank you, Brad. Now, let's start from the top, and I'm going to take it just a little bit further. <clears throat> now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob give, had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come, keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you, you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So let me set the scene and just provide a little background for, for what's going on in the beginning of chapter 4 here. Um, this is near the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. In chapter 2, just prior to this, he had cleared the temple in Jerusalem. He had found money changers and merchants degrading, devaluing the temple of God, and he just wouldn't stand for it. But that didn't really go over well with uh, those money changers, the Jewish leaders who saw that as okay. And so opposition was beginning to rise. Pe people saw him as a troublemaker. But because it wasn't time for him to really reveal himself, he decided to, to head out of Judea and back to Galilee. Now, as the crow flies on the map, Judea to Galilee, um, straight line, you'd have to go through this area called Samaria. Um, but in the Jewish tradition, um, no respectable Jew would, would go through this area. They would actually cross over the Jordan twice just to avoid this area. It would be like if you're downtown in Chinatown or City Hall area, and you had to come up to Trinity. Rather than just jumping on the 6th train and heading straight up, you take the Brooklyn Bridge over, you go through Brooklyn into Queens, come back over the Queensboro, and that's effectively the, the route, that, the standard Jewish route in that day. But what's, what's the impetus for that detour? Because that's, that's an important component of this story. I'll, I'll try to give the 30-second version from 2 Kings 17. Um, back in seven, uh, about 740 B.C., um, the Israelites were messing around with, with different idols again, and, and Samaria was currently the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Assyria began, uh, the nation of Assyria began a besiegement, uh, multi-years where they, you know, were trying to take down uh, Samaria, and they finally did. Many Israelites were exiled as a result of this, and the king of Assyria, which was a, a military strategy at the time, brought in people from the surrounding area to repopulate the land. Now, God had already specifically warned the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7 that they weren't to intermarry with the folks around the promised land because God knew that 
they would be lured into the evil ways of these people, that their hearts would go astray. And if you've read much of the Old Testament, the Israelites already kind of struggle with that obedience thing to begin with. Um, but these people were brought in, and the inevitable intermarriage began the, uh, between the foreigners and the remaining Jews ended up with this, uh, this mixed, impure race that were known as the Samaritans. And so, leading up to this time in, in John 4, it's been about 700 years of animosity and um, just distrust, disrespect between the Jews and the Samaritan people. The Jews had collectively written off an entire nation and ethnicity of people as second-rung, worthless, beneath them, and dishonorable to their nation. So why didn't Jesus just take the, the typical path and go around? Um, we'll come back to that in just a minute. But first, let's, let's talk about respect. Uh, this guy's getting a lot of calls today, but is Mike Little here? Or is he still downstairs cleaning up? Okay, so if you saw the, the bulletin and you saw the, t- the topic, whether it was out there, you might have thought that I would come up here and tell like a, a Rodney Dangerfield joke or something. But I'm going to actually leave that for Mike. If you find him after the service, I'm sur- sure he's got a few that he can rattle off. Um, or you might have thought that I was going to do like an Aretha Franklin cover, you know, bring out like the R-E-S-V-C-T. Uh, that's not going to happen either. Mike's a pretty talented guy, though, so if you ask him the right way, he might be willing to, to show you some of that, too. Um, in the NIV translation of the Bible, the word respect appears 32 times, which in the context of things really isn't that much. Uh, the word love appears over 500 times, just to give you some context. But respect is a concept that has some, some overlapping meanings with words like honor, esteem, reverence. The Webster Dictionary defines the term respect as a feeling or understanding that someone or something is good, valuable, or important and should be treated in an appropriate way. So our story focuses on offering respect to another human being, but it, it seems to me kind of putting the cart before the horse if we don't look, if we try to attribute value to a creation without first looking at the creator. In Proverbs 1.7, one of the, the first verses of the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom, Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now the word used here for fear is the Hebrew yirah. This is a, a very misunderstood concept in the book of Proverbs. This is, this is a revering fear. It's not a distrustful terror that God is going to strike you down if you disobey. It is a worshipful response of faith to the God that we recognize as our creator and savior. It's a holy respect based on the good character of God and the incomparable, unfathomable magnitude of the Lord. Solomon uses this term 14 times in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord, and multiple different benefits that it has. Um, and anytime you see repetition in the Bible, it generally means pay attention. In Psalm 8, David says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. So a quick astronomy lesson. Um, and these are all rough estimates, but it gives you the general scale of, of what I'm talking about. Um, it's estimated that our Milky Way galaxy, a typical galaxy, has 100 billion stars. And most scientists estimate that there are 10 trillion galaxies in the known universe. Um, if you do the math in your head, which I'm sure you all are doing right now, that comes out to one octillion stars, which is one, I didn't even know that was a word, but uh, it's one with 29 zeros behind it. 
in one of the worship songs that we sing here often, uh, it says, he placed the stars in the sky and he knows them by name. How many times do we sing that and, and just go through the words without really thinking about how magnificent that is? How great our creator God is? John Piper says, it is about the greatness of God, not the significance of man. God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. And another author, Kevin Hartnett, puts it this way. We will never fathom him. We will never tire of him. Through all eternity, we will look upon him and marvel at the endlessly creative, wonderfully gracious, uniquely righteous, timelessly beautiful, unsearchably glorious, infinitely loving maker and ruler of all. Our God is worthy to be respected, revered, and praised because of who he is, which has manifested itself in what he has done. And when we think about what he has done, besides the whole octillion stars thing, um, his prized creation is us. His masterpiece is each one of us. Genesis 1 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Our human character, our bodies, our minds, our eternal souls are all reflections of the God who created us. His intentional craftsmanship, his extreme attention to detail, and just that creational love. Psalm 139 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This fearfully is from the same Hebrew root, yare, as the verses in Proverbs. God crafted us with respect and reverence, intentionality. Nobody is a mistake. God gives us intrinsic value because we were made to reflect him. This book, which I am betting my life and my eternity is the truth, says that each one of us is uniquely and beautifully made in God's image. And that gives every one of us here and every person out there automatic, innate, intrinsic value. Regardless of what we look like, what we say, what we believe. So if you're here today and you're not you just wandered in off the street, you're not sure about this whole God thing, I want you to hear one thing, and then you can, you know, kind of disregard the rest of my rambling. Um, God designed you and made you exactly as he intended and wanted you to be. You, and you, and you, and you, and you, and everybody else in here, and everybody else out in that world. You aren't a consequence of some random gene meshing or an assembly line God drew out the blueprint specifically for you. He made no mistakes. Nothing was by accident. And he loves you so much more than anything you will ever experience on this earth, anything that we will ever comprehend. He knows every hair on your head, every cell in your body, every dark place in your heart. And he still offers that same invitation that he does in John 7 when he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. So, circling back to the the question that I put on hold before, why did Jesus take the route through Samaria rather than following the typical typical path around? 
All we know is that verse 4 says, now he had to go through Samaria. Now he had to go through Samaria. The Greek verb used here is is die, D-E-I, which translates to there being a necessity to it, that there was a duty in it, that it was somehow right and proper for him to take this way. Jesus knew the history. It's not, you know, like he, he wasn't aware of what the current state was, but he, he didn't accept the preconceived stereotype, and he certainly didn't allow that to dictate his actions. Jesus didn't accept the status quo that devalued the Samaritan people simply because that was the culture nor, cultural norm of the day. Instead, we see Jesus moving towards these people, that his own people disagreed with and whom they disrespected. So why did Jesus take this path? Um, I'm not going to pretend to read his mind, but we don't necessarily do this well today. And so I see this as a direct model and example for us to, to implement and follow. Stockwell Day, a Canadian politician, says, As all human beings are, in my view, creation creatures of God's design. We must respect all other human beings. That does not mean I have to agree with their choices or agree with their opinions, but indeed I respect them as human beings. He's talking about the intrinsic value of God's creation. So what does this respect look like in in practical terms? Um, Let's go back to verse 7 to grasp some of the principles that, that I think Jesus plays out here. When it says... When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And to fully appreciate that response, let's just recap what we know about this woman. She is a woman, which in this society automatically makes her a second-class citizen. She is a Samaritan, which we already know. We've talked about the history there. For a Jew to speak with a Samaritan was just—it just didn't happen. And we know later on that she's an adulteress. And she's coming to this well alone in the middle of the day, presumably because she is aware of her social status in this society. And there is some shame there that she doesn't need, she she just can't associate with other people. For, For a Jew, any one of these would have been an instant red flag, would have exhibited disgust or condescension, and certainly disengagement at the very least. Based on her pedigree, she was one of the lowest people on the totem pole in this, in this society today, in this society then. No respectable Jew would, would be talking to this woman under these circumstances. And yet, these are the exact people that Jesus came to save. We see this over and over. In Luke 5, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. More often than not in the stories, these are the types of people that Jesus is associating with. Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. He didn't reserve his energy for interactions that were comfortable and socially acceptable. Jesus, in this interaction, offered this woman a level of dignity that was radically different than how society had treated her. We see Jesus move towards her from a position of humility and vulnerability. He didn't degrade her. He didn't command in his request. He didn't treat her as a slave. He didn't treat her as she expected to be treated. This story reminds me of a a ministry in the East Village that some of you may be familiar with called Father's Heart. 
Uh, every Saturday morning um, at 10 a.m., they open the doors and serve an all-you-can-eat breakfast to whoever wants to come in. Um, usually there are people lined up down the street. I think they average about 700 people within one hour that they feed. Again, all-you-can-eat, restaurant-style service. Um, right before they start and open the doors, everybody kind of gathers up front for a little intro. And, and the pastor of the church there uh, kind of gives the same message every time. He says, thank you for being here. Glad you're here to serve. We're obviously going to feed these people, but our first task is to try to restore a sense of dignity to each person that walks through that door. We cheer them as they come in. We treat them as if we were in Daniel or per se. He gives this example. If you saw a $100 bill that had been stepped on, thrown in the mud, it was sitting in the gutter out there as you crossed 61st Street, would you pick it up? Yeah, because it still is worth $100. It still has that intrinsic value. And that's true for every person that walks through that door at Father's Heart. And it's true for every person in here and every person that we interact with out there. Jesus focused on how God saw this woman rather than how the world perceived her. Yes, she was a sinner, and we see that he dealt with that. But first and foremost, he saw her through God's eyes as a masterpiece of his creation and one of the lost sheep that he loved so dearly. That's the same way that he sees me and the same way that he sees you. We're all broken, but we all have intrinsic value because we are God's creation. Jesus' actions had, had ripple effects here, too. By, by treating her in this radical way, by acknowledging the value that society didn't see, he opened the door for a deeper conversation about her current situation and, and inevitably, inevitably the gospel. He didn't, again, shy away from dealing with the sin, but if he had opened with, I know who you are and what you've done, repent from your sins, and, you know, give me a drink of water while you're at it, we probably have a much different story in John 4, or no story at all. Demonstrating this basic level of respect broke down perceived barriers and opened the door for, for communication, and inevitably for, for the Holy Spirit to do work that we aren't able to do in our human capacity. We see this woman's response is, is multifold. First, we, we can't simply... We can't overlook the fact that she is engaging with Jesus in the first place. Again, this is a woman who is very aware of her status in society. She's at the well alone in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. It's just not something that, that a normal person would be doing. If, if anything, she was probably expecting a hostile interaction with this man that she recognized to be a Jew. But again, Jesus showed that she was worth his time and his attention. Jesus disrupted her day-to-day. And this woman was so impacted by this interaction that she left her water jugs and ran back to the village to tell everybody. Again, she left water that she probably needed. They went to the well every day for cooking just to drink to survive. And she put all that to the side to go back and tell people about this transformative interaction that she had had. We also see that she took God at at his word. When he said that he, he was the Messiah, she didn't question him. She, she came to this, this interaction as children, which is what Jesus tells us to do. Childlike faith. She believed his promises, and she found renewed hope and confidence to proclaim the good news to other people. 
where before she was one of the least respected people in her village. Now she was proclaiming, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. This doesn't sound like a woman who is still enslaved by her sins to me. But she had found her identity and her self-worth in God and was no longer allowing external means to dictate it. So I... I now have this story about uh, myself that I, right before the, the service, I had to cross out because God showed me what I, you know, I, I just had to change a little bit, but God showed me what I really needed to say here. Um, you know, I, throughout my, my high school years, my college years, my, into my early 20s, I, I really found my, my worth. I, I put bank in what I did, what I accomplished, what the world said I was good at. Especially when, when I got my first job at a big Wall Street bank, you know, I love to proclaim that name, and, and I, was, I was very good at what I did, and I made sure that people knew it. I made sure that they knew and respected the fact that I was really good. And it wasn't, I was about to say, it wasn't until Sarah and I did premarital counseling with Keith that the, the principle that I go back to that I, I think was invaluable that he showed me, and it comes from a book called The Marriage Builder, was that... Some people go into relationships, when it's, whether it's friendship or marriage, um, thinking that that's going to fill a gap in them, that that's going to fill that need for security and significance in life, that they're going to be valued by this other person every day. They're so in love. But things in this life are broken. People in this life are broken, and they let you down. And, and so the, the principle that, that Keith highlighted to us is you need to find your security and your significance barring everything else in Christ Jesus and who you are in him, first and foremost. And I thought that was a, a great piece of advice, and I, I really took that to heart and kind of thought that I had, I had conquered that to a certain extent. But Sarah will tell you, I really struggled with this message this week. And, you know, I, I kept thinking to myself, I, I, want to, I want to perform well. I want people to, to see that I, I can be used as a vessel of God. It was all about me and finding my worth through delivering this message to you people. And God showed me that, I mean, I, I wrote here, this sermon is not about me. Going back to what I said a few weeks ago, this is not about me. This is about him. And so how well I do here, as long as I'm talking through this, which I, I hope I am, you know, I, I find my worth in God, not in how well I'm perceived or how many people after this say that I did a great job. So I am still learning this thing. And, you know, preachers will say that, you know, the toughest messages are, are ones that really, you know, convict you. And I, I didn't get that until five minutes before the, the service this morning. <laughs> Respect for oneself should, should yield a healthy self-worth based in who we are in God. And that, that in turn yields a sense of humility in comparison to the one that did create us. So the last, the last re, uh, result of this interaction that I want to mention comes from later in the chapter, starting in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know this man really is the Savior of the world. 
As we see time and time again, God uses the most unlikely characters to bring his message of salvation. These villagers saw a change in this woman, and they were transformed by their interaction with Jesus. Jesus sought out and saved this broken woman, and he utilized her to spread his message of good news. And I am so grateful that God is still doing that today. He is saving broken people like you and me and using us for purposes that we could never comprehend or understand or even fathom before he got involved. Gary Chapman, author of The Five Languages, says, Respect begins with this attitude. I acknowledge that you are a creature of extreme worth. That attitude that Chapman refers to reflects and flows from the condition of one's heart, a changed heart that has had a transformative interaction with God. We are not going to value the creation if we don't first value and respect the creator. When we embrace the truth of our own value as children of God, we are empowered and equipped to pour that out on other people. Again, we we all want to feel respected, but... What's in our control? Respect can be given or received from others, but we're only responsible for our actions and how we look towards God and towards others and to ourselves. So let me leave you with three quick challenges. First, take time this week. Really take time. Five or ten minutes, whenever you have quiet, to, to try to revel in... I I just, I lose these words. The majesty, the tremendous person that is God. The the verse, uh, the the song that we sang earlier, The Great I Am, I was immediately struck by the the verse there, the first time I heard the song, when it says, The mountains shake before him, the demons run and flee at the mention of the name King of Majesty. There is no power in hell or any who can stand before the power and the presence of the great I am. And again, we sing these words, and it's, it's tough for us to really get into them. But take time this week to try, ask God to show you his magnificence, how great he is. How I, I look forward to the day in heaven when he's going to say to me, Dave, look at the, the greatest thought that, that you ever thought about me how it is but a grain of sand in what I actually am. And it's just, it's just going to blow, blow our minds. Second, think about where you're deriving your self-worth from. Are you allowing the, the world to dictate it day by day based on what happens, your interactions, how it goes at work, how's it going at home? Or are you saying, God, I find my identity in you. I know that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Third, allow your day to be disrupted by Jesus. What, what is your Samaria that he might be calling you to, to move towards? Think about the people that you interact with every day. Are you seeing them as, as a child of God, a unique and masterful creation of the God who created the universe? One of the ways I, I did this once, and it, it was really impactful for me, is next, next time you're on the subway, just, just look around. And look at each person individually and think to yourself, God made them exactly as they were intended to be. God knows them. Jesus died for them. And he wants a relationship with them just like he wants a relationship with me. 
and see if that doesn't kind of jog your mind a little bit. This Samaritan woman accepted the free gift that Jesus offered her, and she was made new, just like Jacqueline talked about. She is a new creation. She found her value in Christ, and that's what happens when we encounter Christ. When we believe, he says, we believe that he is who he says he is, and we we submit to him and his promises. We are made new. So if you're here today and and you've you've never made that connection before, I'm going to close this in prayer in just a minute, and I'm going to I'm going to pray through a prayer that will give you the opportunity to do that if that's something that's on your heart today. I would ask you just to, to ask God to enter into your heart, that his spirit would convict you, and that you would submit to him in, in this moment today. Whether you're making that decision for the first time or if it's something to say, you know, God, I've got to come to you anew today. You can say those words in the quiet of your heart. Paul Paul writes in Romans 10, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time. We praise you for your, your awesomeness your unfathomability. You are truly indescribable. Thank you for lovingly designing and creating each one of us, but I thank you that you did not leave us to perish in our sin, Lord, but that you loved us so much that you sent your Son to pay the penalty for our sins and that you raised him for our justification, Lord. I pray that you would Help us to see where we may not be embracing our Christ-given value and where we may not be pouring that out on other people. Lord, convict us this week as we go through. Walk with us. Give us eyes to see how much you love us, Lord, and empower us to put that into action for you. Lord, if there's anybody here who has been on the fence and says, Lord, I, 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 want, I want to be new in you. I want to know the love and the value that you have for me. I don't want to be dictated by the things of this world. I I just, uh, I hope they'll pray with me, Lord, that, Lord, we're sinners. I am a sinner. And I thank you that you, again, did not leave me in my sin, but that you reached down from heaven, that you sent your son to die for me, a sinner's death on the cross. And I believe that he was raised for the de- from the dead for my justification so that one day I can sit with you in heaven, Lord. I pray that you would forgive me from, from my sins, Lord, today and help me walk anew in the power of your spirit when I leave here today. Thank you, Lord. We love you. And we thank you that you love us. In your name, amen.